Welcome back to Crazy Fate Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Erica. And I'm Steve. So, gang, we're still in our series of hard sayings uh, throughout the Old Testament. We had a couple weeks on hard sayings from Jesus and a few episodes on the hard sayings of Paul. And so we're continuing with Paul this week. And I'm going to turn things over to Steve to tell us exactly where we're heading this this day. Well, um, sometimes the things that are hard sayings are problems or difficult situations for us as 21st century listeners, mm-hmm. and sometimes the situations that make something hard are that these were really controversial issues in the first century that we're left scratch on our heads going, why was this a fight? Mm-hmm. And that's where we're headed today. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 8 is where we'll start. Uh, that's just hanging right at Romans if you were following along in your own Bible as well. And like Sarah had pointed out a couple of episodes ago, sometimes in Paul's letter he will really helpfully say, now I'm going to tell you what I'm going to talk about. Here's the topic of the next thing I want to write about. And it seems like he's responding to correspondence or a conversation he's had with his audience. Sometimes it might have been from when he was live in the town with them and then writes to them later, or he's gotten a letter from them. But in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul starts up this juicy conversation. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge, unquote. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And then he goes on from there. So Paul seems to think the subject of eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols is a really hot-button issue. And the New Testament suggests it really was. Mm-hmm. And maybe we should stop and ask, why was this an issue? What What is the problem? Why were people upset by this in the first century? And then, like, what on earth does this have to do with us when we are less likely to have meat idols <laughs> uh, at our local grocery store? So a common way that people would worship their gods was that they would go to temples or shrines or wherever there was a depiction of their god or goddess, and they would bring them food and leave the food there. And then the priests or caretakers of the shrine or temple or wherever had the option of eating the food or selling the food and using that money towards whatever causes that god or goddess did. Um, So you could, in fact, buy food that somebody had left for that god. Um, Sometimes, I imagine it was very tasty food. Very yummy. And probably in an era where, since there weren't McDonald's on every corner and there weren't grocery stores, like, your source of protein was probably a meat, and your source of getting meat was the local market where most of the meat had come from some pagan temple somewhere. Again, this is a little bit of a culture shock, because we're used to, uh, at least Americans are used to, uh, Christianity being a dominant religion, and where there's no meat involved in our regular worship services that we have an excess of to dole out, and part of pagan worship, I mean, part of, not just in the Roman Empire, but a lot of ancient peoples, including ancient Israel, slaughtered animals, and the consumption of the animal was a part of of the worship life, and in Israel's memory, you eat it, you share some of it with the priests, you share it with the poor and the needy around you, pretty much end of story, doesn't necessarily go to market, but in the Roman culture, yeah, ends up in the market. Yeah, because I, I like to imagine, like, in today's society, we have a tendency to be very concerned about food waste, mm-hmm. and I don't think that this is a new concept, especially in, this would have been first century yeah, Israel, even more so, where food was scarce, so if you imagine that part of your religion dictates that you have to go sacrifice a lamb, um, so you take a live lamb that you probably raised to the temple 
it's slaughtered, like it's killed, you're not just going to leave a dead carcass and nothing happened to that lamb then. No, you're going to cook it. Like, it's not going to be wasted. I mean, it, like, took away your sins, but it also, the meat is still good. So <laughs> let's let's eat this thing. Right. And I think it's, it, maybe it's a, it's a helpful reminder, too, that when the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew scriptures talk about offering sacrifices at the temple or wherever, the idea was you, you offered up the animal and, yeah, you ate it right there. Some part got burned up, but there's a sense of a meal as part of it. So it's not even like the idea of eating the sacrificial animal is weird or new to the people of uh, Israel either. Uh, the weird part is that now you're talking about animals that weren't just sacrificed to Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You're talking about animals that have been you know, sacrificed to Zeus or Jupiter or Apollo or Artemis or in some cases Caesar as well. Mm-hmm. And so the question then that Paul has to wrestle with, because the people in Corinth are wrestling with it, is, is it okay to eat the meat that had come from one of these pagan temple worship events, or is that somehow defying my allegiance to Jesus, right? Yeah, the way I, again, look at this is if, imagine the political group that you disagree with the most is selling cookies. Mm -hmm. Would you buy and eat those cookies and support their cause? Right, right, right. Maybe, because they are darn good cookies. <laughs> right. And, and, and this, this maybe raises, like, there's a long, long tradition, maybe even going back to the first century, of uh, the, the question of what things do we boycott over? What, what are things mm-hmm. that we say no? And, and in Christian history, there have been times where people out of their faith commitment have said, no, I won't support this cause or that cause or this. I mean, going back to the civil rights movement easily as a sort of powerful, positive example of uh, responding to segregation with we're going to boycott the bus. That There have been times where Christians have said, out of our faith, we're not going to spend our money here or here or here or here. It's even maybe heavier stakes in the first century where the question was, am I acknowledging that these other gods are real if I eat, is this like an act of worship now if I'm participating in getting the meat that came from here or here or here? And remembering that Paul's writing to like, you know, first, second generation Christians. These are people who are brand new at this and a faith that's figuring it out as well. And Paul has the difficult challenge of figuring out how to sort of transpose the Christian song into Gentile, you know, key, mm-hmm. you know, like, it, it, within Judaism, the questions were, do we still have to keep kosher or not? And now when you bring this to the Gentile world that's so immersed in the cosmopolitan life of the empire, there's a lot of questions of, well, what from that old Gentile life do we have to chuck, and what are things we can keep, and what things doesn't matter? And we're living side by side as the minority, and not as the dominant force that can just say, there is no meat sacrificed to idols. So maybe this, this, the, the way Paul addresses this circumstance is going to be really, really important for um, Christians in the 21st century and beyond as we have to deal with maybe not being the, the majority everywhere or having to live with, uh, oh, there's lots of voices around and being able to accommodate the presence of other people around and not just dictate, no, we will only do it our way, but how do we live as, a, as not the dominant voice decreeing what everybody else has to do? I mean, Paul assumes that Christians are the weak minority who don't have dominant force and wrote from that perspective, maybe we will have to listen more closely to that kind of a voice. Because yeah, I can imagine that if Paul did come down on the side of, no, do not eat any food that has been sacrificed to idols, then the important question for these new Christians are, where are we going to get our protein? Mm -hmm. Because if suddenly you can't go to the marketplace and buy, you know, the lamb or the um, whatever animal is for sale, where are you going to get the protein? Like, 
You right, need you protein. want it to just die and wither from malnutrition. Mm-hmm. Fall, right. right. And maybe this is a point to remember, too, that in sometimes in Christian history, Christianity has come off as a rather otherworldly religion that God didn't care about this life, and it's sort of, yes, if you must starve, we'll all fly in heaven and it'll be lovely. Mm-hmm. And Paul deliberately doesn't ever take that kind of, like, when, when Paul's being honest, it's like, God cares about this life, and Jesus cares about this life, so whatever promises we have about eternal life, don't short-circuit, yes, you need to eat well, you need to rest well, you need to make sure that those you're responsible for are well and healthy, and that, that's, that's a part of what it is to live the, the life of following Jesus too. So when Paul gets around to actually like weighing in on the subject now that he's raised it, how, how does he talk about it? Well, he talks about how, um, and, and basically, I'll just, I'll just read here, starting in verse 4. Hence, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that no, quote, no idol in the world really exists, and that there is no God but one. And so, you know, he first comes to this argument in just saying, we recognize that while this is offered to, quote-unquote, idols, these idols aren't real. These are wood. These are stone figures. It doesn't really mean anything. And so it, it's basically, I, I hear him saying, it's okay to eat this stuff because what they're being sacrificed to doesn't exist. And so, and we know that. Right, right. But then he kind of backtracks a little bit and says, well, some people, though, are going to get upset over this. And we're like, you know, then you're going to have this tension that, you know, well, do we eat it or don't we, you know. And this, I think, is the really radical move that Paul makes. Because mm-hmm. he doesn't just say, there's no such thing as idols, I'm right, you can eat whatever you want, and anybody who's upset, they're wrong. I mean, like, Paul can sometimes get that kind of testy kind of attitude. And there are some times where Paul sort of takes a hard line, if you can't tell me what to do, I'm a Christian, I'm mm-hmm. bringing Christ, gosh darn it. Um, but here, he sort of backs off and goes like, look, there's, these idols aren't real, it's really not a problem, it's fine to eat the meat sacrificed idols. But... Let love be what guides how you choose. And if other people around are scandalized by this, be careful of how you're acting so that you're not messing with them. And Paul frames it in terms of the if you're if you think the way I do, you weren't we th- we think of ourselves as the strong ones, and those other people who were still scandalized by this meat sacrifice idols, they're the weak ones. But Paul says our predisposition as Christians, it's always for concern for whoever you imagine is weak. Yes. I mean, the, the cool thing for it, for me in my mind is Paul's like, if you think you're right, and everybody tends to think their position is the right one, then make wiggle room for people who think differently. That Paul doesn't say, we're right, everybody has to bend to us because we're the right ones. But Paul has this sense of, look, what if we made room for people who think differently and didn't intentionally uh, cause them harm or get them upset? Because they'll get scandalized by this. And instead of rubbing this in their face, what if we intentionally were mindful of the people who were, you know, were around so that we're not intentionally upsetting them? Um, I remember reading early, early on when I was in seminary this line about preaching. The, the writer says something like, the goal of the preacher is to cause the right kind of scandal. And he, he goes on to say, like, there's wrong kinds of scandals. You know, if you end up uh, you know, offending everybody because you've told an off-color joke at the beginning of your sermon or um, for, you know, whatever other things might be scandals, you're getting in the way of people hearing the real scandalous news about, you know, a God who dies on a cross. That, that, that's the right scandal. And getting people upset over stupid stuff is sort of wasting your, your chips, so to speak, wasting your, your capital when the thing that should scandalize people is the actual good news of Jesus. Well, I see Paul here kind of addressing the idea you have those those folks that are on the fringe of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Either they're brand new believers, like just got baptized yesterday, or they're, they're thinking about it. They're watching the Christians, mm-hmm. and, and they're, they're looking, and they're like, they live differently, and I think I like this, but I'm not sure. And then, you know, they see a Christian eating something that was, you know, given to an idol, they're like, wait, wait, hold on a second, hold on, wait a second, this Christian is... 
I thought Christians didn't believe in idols, and so right. why are they doing this? And right. so that's, I think, what Paul's getting at is, you know, he's, for those folks that just don't have a, as full of a grasp of Christianity as maybe some of the folks that he's writing to in Corinth do, which, I mean, let's be honest, this is still a new faith, and right. they're still figuring this out, so even they don't have the fullest grasp. Even us, 2,000 years later, right, 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 right. Either. Um, but I, I think he's just, you know, it's looking out for those fringe folks that, you know, might be thinking about joining this movement that is Christianity, might be thinking about what it means to be Christian, and, the, and they see this, and they're like, wait a second, I don't know if I want to mm-hmm. do that, and then, then you just lost somebody for the kingdom. Right, right, right. So, um, one of the things I think is really, really important, even though at first this subject might seem like, who cares about meat sacrifice idols? That's not an issue in the 21st century church. The, the underlying thought pattern seems important to me. And at the very, very beginning of this whole conversation, Paul says, after he's quoted, apparently quoted the Corinthians about, we all know that all of us possess knowledge. That seems to have been like a motto of the Corinthians of, we're smart, we know a lot of stuff. And Paul says, okay. But then Paul says, knowledge puffs up and love builds up. And, and he seems to be laying the groundwork, because this is later on the same letter that we'll hear those words recited at every wedding, even though it's not about marriage, about love is patient, and kind of that whole chapter about love. And it seems like Paul's whole train of thought, I mean, he's thinking long-term, is like, the deeper issue is, can we be people who live and act out of love? And that means not insisting on me getting my way all the time, but being able to make room for people who think and see things differently. I mean, that's one of the hallmarks Paul says about love later on in, in 1 Corinthians 13. Love doesn't insist on getting its own way uh, and is able to, to bend and, and to... There's this beautiful line from the old Shaker hymn, to, be, uh, to bow and to bend, we won't be ashamed. There's this idea of, like, we take turns sort of bending to one another. Uh, and Paul has that sense of that's what it's all about. Um, that that's how he sees this ethical issue, uh, and really how he comes back to a lot of different ethical questions, come to what does love look like here? It means sometimes I'm willing to not get my way because I'm looking out for the good of the other. Maybe let me ask this. Paul comes down to a conclusion at the end of this section when Paul says, okay, even though I'm convinced that... Um, uh, it doesn't matter whether you eat uh, meat and sacrifice or idol or not. Then he says, um, but make sure that this liberty of yours doesn't somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And Paul goes on to say, um, if food is a cause of somebody else's failing, uh, I'll never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. So Paul ends up saying, even though I believe this way, uh, that it doesn't matter if I do, if it's going to cause upset for somebody else and harm somebody else's fledgling faith, uh, I'll, I'll be one not eat meat at all just to avoid... Not, not that he's running away from the issue, but he's like, I don't have to deliberately upset somebody or cause scandal over this. Um, and Paul has a different sense of how we use our freedom. Like in, in the culture that we live in, in America, we tend to think of freedom like in a negative sense of I'm free, nobody can tell me what I have to do. Like you can't tell me I have to do this or that. In this freedom of I'm free from anybody else telling me or bossing me around. And Paul has this very different sense of freedom is always freedom for. So freedom is for the sake of the neighbor. Freedom is what am I free to do uh, now that nobody else is bossing me around. And that's a different, that, that is kind of countercultural in a sense. Are, are there ways that this issue or this the way Paul handles this 2,000 years ago speaks helpfully to situations that we might face today? I think sometimes in the church today we get so caught up with our own particular meat issue, mm-hmm. whatever that is, mm-hmm. that we, we want to be like, well, we are right on this and nobody can tell. You know, It's, again, that idea, I am right, everybody else has to agree with me rather than saying, well, you know what, I think I'm right on this, mm-hmm. but maybe I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. And maybe... 
me saying, you know, that I'm right about this particular issue or that you, you have to believe this way about this particular issue is really going to cause that stumbling block for somebody who disagrees with us or somebody who's again, is figuring out their faith process. And so we have to be careful in how, what we take a good, solid stand on. Yeah, yeah. And, like, if we, if we believe, uh, as Protestants tend to say we believe, that we're saved by grace apart from anything we've done, mm-hmm. we also don't get to put in that category of works that you do, um, having correct theological answers. Yes. I mean, sometimes we're like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, it's not because mm-hmm. you said the right prayers. That's a foolish idea that you can earn God's love that way. The correct way to earn God's love is by getting an A on the theology exam. And like, no, it's not that either. If you're saved by grace, you're saved by grace. And that means it's not about, well, you've got enough answers right or you've got enough orthodoxy to you know, pass some you know, uh, bar. Grace means grace means grace. Um, and that means that somehow our sense of how we belong together in church has to be rooted in God says we belong, not that we can all find enough like-mindedness that we can all be on the same page. There, obviously, there's differences across traditions, and it's okay that you know that church down the road does things different than this church over here does things differently than people half a world away. Um, but being able to say what binds us together isn't our like-mindedness, and it never was. I, mean, like, I think that's really the radical thing, because sometimes you'll hear this hobby horse getting beaten, especially in the 21st century of, we've got, uh, what a mess, because nobody can agree now, but back in the first century, everybody agreed. No. I mean, like, Paul gives us evidence. In the first century, they were at the point of schism left and right. Um, and sometimes it was questions over, are Gentiles allowed to be in? Or do they have to give up their Gentile ways first? Or, you know, this meat sacrifice to idols or whatnot. And the early church wrestled, not with a decree of what we all have to agree and believe the same thing, but there was a lot of, we're going to bear with each other, because we're a people of love before we're people about people who think they know stuff. I, I think that's important, too, to say, because as uncomfortable or squeamish as we met, might get about this, the Bible itself has multiple opinions on this meat sacrifice idol thing. The book of Revelation, written in a sort of different scenario where there's a real hot and heavy persecution of the church going on by the empire, and sort of the, the force of the empire is, is real powerful. The writer of uh, Revelation has this real strong, like, don't you dare eat meat sacrifice to idols. That's like, you're giving in. And it's not so much about the idol so much as you're giving in to the ways and the force of the empire, you know, like the, you mm-hmm. know, uh, because one of those gods that the empire insisted on worship was Caesar. And it's around the time of Caesar Augustus and later that Roman emperors started insisting on them being worshipped as gods and incense being burned and animals offered for them. And so for the writer of Revelation, there's much more of a sort of a political... No, you don't get to worship Caesar and also confess Christ as Lord. you got to pick who, who is your ultimate allegiance, Caesar or Jesus. And there's a different setting going on. But like clearly... Paul and the writer of Revelation, John of Patmos, have like a different way of talking about this. And instead of saying, well, the Bible is an answer book that if I bring a question, there's one verse I go to and it gives me the answer for all times and circumstances, the Bible itself tells us, do not read this book this way. That's not how it works. Um, and for that matter, even sometimes in Paul's own writing, sometimes he'll see to me leaning one way and then later on he'll be like, okay, but in this context, here's how I want to advise you here. That tells us something about even how we read the Bible, too, I think. Uh, we talked before about the challenge of authority that uh, everybody, all, all Christians kind of have this, well, we're pro-Jesus, but Paul himself will sometimes say, here, I've got the authority of an apostle, believe me on this, and other times he'll be like, I don't have a saying of Jesus on this one, so this is just me spitballing here. That, that, that makes it more complicated than just treating the Bible like the back of your elementary math textbook where all the answers were in the back, you know? Um... I wonder whether this might, even even though the particular issue Paul deals with here, could be helpful when we navigate things like um, 
whether you do or don't um, drink alcohol around other people who are in recovery, or uh, whether you do or don't eat meat around friends who are vegetarian or vegan or whatever. And if that's, if, if even if Paul never intended exactly that particular issue, if, if this might give us guidance. I th- for me, like some of those things are, are on a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. I had friends in seminary that were recovering alcoholics who were far enough into their recovery um, that they could go out and hang with other folks that were drinking and didn't bother them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wouldn't, you know, if I knew somebody was 60 days sober, I probably wouldn't drink in front of them because, right. you know, I just don't want to, I, I, I don't want to have that around them to be a temptation for them. Sure, sure. No matter sure. how comfortable they say that they are, I'd rather be, again, like Paul, I'd rather not drink than to drink in front of somebody and say, you know, and accidentally maybe offer them something and then they take it and sure. there goes their 60 days of soberness. Sure, sure. And it's not even the necessarily the assumption that someone who's in recovery will give in to temptation about like how much harder you make it if you're like, mm, I love this delicious, oh, you can't have any. It, like, yeah. it makes it harder to stick with the recovery if it's like, this is terrible, I hate, you know, that, that, mm-hmm. that it, it's, it's not even that you're, you're uh, thinking you'll lure them with a drink, but that how much harder it can be to resist that temptation, yeah. And yeah. I and I kind of think again, this is all context yeah. because um, having a beer in front of or with somebody—well, not with, but like in the same like social group—as somebody who's recovering, a recovering alcoholic, I think it's a different scenario than having dinner at a restaurant with a vegetarian or a vegan. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because recovering alcoholic, they are struggling against an addiction. Whereas a vegetarian and a vegan is choosing from abstaining from eating animals or animal byproducts, depending on where they fall on that line, um, because of moral or religious or environmental reasons. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's different because, again, with recovering alcoholics, we don't want to cause anybody to stumble back into addiction. Um, Whereas a vegetarian or vegan is different because they are very much like this is where I stand I'm standing fast um and depending on the relationship that you have with them they may or may not be mad at you for eating a hamburger in front of them right 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 and probably in in that kind of circumstance someone who's made the choice to be vegan or vegetarian is probably like they've got a sense of internal conviction about like that this mm-hmm. is important to them, and they're in some sense prepared to even if this isn't popular. At the same time, they're probably a lot more susceptible to people making fun of them or razzing them about it. And maybe that's a piece of like, okay, maybe they're cool with you eating a cheeseburger in front of them, but please don't be a jerk and like rub it in and be like, mmm, this is so bacony good. When that's kind of being a jerk, right? Yeah, and I think they might also be slightly more likely to try to do the evangelism thing in ways that um, recovering alcoholics again probably aren't. (laughs) Aren't trying to persuade people to drink. Yeah, yeah. well, or not to drink. You know, like recovering alcoholics generally have a pretty good stance on, oh, this is a problem for me, but it's not necessarily a problem for you, unless, of course, they actually think it is a problem for you, in which case they probably (laughs) will try to intervene. But um, a good thing. Yeah, as somebody who does eat meat, Especially at restaurants where I don't have to prepare it. Um, you know, that's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know where I was going with that thought. <laughs> maybe, maybe too. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know how often this will be a circumstance, but it may be worth saying out loud, too, that um, 
while we don't live in a culture where uh, local uh, grocery stores have gotten their meat from uh, a local pagan shrine, um, we will probably interact with folks uh, of different religious faiths who might have different rules about what they do or don't eat. Mm -hmm. And it's at least worth being considerate. Again, like it, it, just because someone else has to keep kosher or halal doesn't mean that we take that as an obligation because we have a different faith, but it does mean we don't have to be jerks about it. And mm -hmm. maybe that's an important like rule of thumb. Maybe a way of saying in the 21st century, Paul's line, knowledge puffs up and love builds up, is you don't have to be a jerk. So yeah, yeah. nobody can make you keep kosher or eat halal when you're around other folks who have different faiths, but you don't have to be a jerk because even, I mean, Paul seems to have the sense that love governs all of our relationships, not just with other inside group members as Christians, but we're supposed to practice love toward everybody. So that means that when I'm around other people whose eating habits and practices are different, I don't have to go, uh, you know, when I, if, I'm, if I'm out with uh, Jewish folk who are keeping kosher to say, please, can I have some bacon with it? I don't have to go out of my way to make them do something that makes mm -hmm. them uncomfortable. Uh, and for that matter, I don't have to make a stink if my grocery store carries halal meat. I'm glad that people who have that particular yeah. need, that's available for them, rather than, oh man, I hate it that my grocery store offers so many options. And sometimes, I mean, like, honestly, sometimes I'll hear that kind of remark from folks like, man, I hate it that the grocery store offers options for people who have different faith. And it, to me, it feels like that it, what you're really longing for is being the only person on the block uh, instead of like, no, we're called to be people who are about love. And the New Testament assumes we're going to be one of many kinds of voices around mm -hmm. and that it's the uniqueness of our love that's meant to be winsome, not you all have to do what we say. Mm -hmm. I remember I had a... I brought in a Muslim family to a, a previous church to, to talk about Islam and try to help... Uh, people understand that not all Muslims are terrorists, and we had a potluck afterwards for uh, for my friend Mara to come and share about how he reads the Quran and how he understands Islam. And and being a potluck and being Methodist, of course, there was all kinds of meat and things there. And um, I was the only one that was thoughtful enough, mostly because of my understanding for them. I'm not saying my folks weren't thoughtful, but I made sure there was a vegetarian dish there because I wasn't sure if some of the meat that other people were bringing would have pork in it. Right. And, you know, that's something... It'd be the same thing if I would have had a kosher rabbi sure. come. You sure. know, the same mm -hmm. idea. Just making sure that there was something at least there for, that they could eat that I that they would know did not you right. know, go against their religious beliefs. Right. And I think it's that willingness to be thoughtful and mindful that, like, that... Uh, leaves the best impression with mm -hmm. folks, you know, as far as maintaining and, and connect, keeping those connections. That it may well be that uh, other friends or associates uh, who come from different faith traditions that won't make a big deal about it. And they're like, you know, whatever, I'll be fine. You know, but but it's that thoughtfulness of like, you matter, and I want to be thinking mm -hmm. about how does this how does this hit you or how does this affect you. That goes a long way. And if we as communities, as you know, as churches, as congregations, as people can be practicing that kind of thoughtfulness, that's often what love looks like. It's mm -hmm. not just thinking about me and what do I like, but oh, what will the needs of other people be around me? Paul says that's the difference between just puffing up and building up. So, I don't know, other thoughts on this subject? Okay. It seems to me like... Um, what at first might seem like an embarrassing, like out of touch, you know, passage about oh, we don't have this issue anymore. We can just cut this out of our Bibles. Turns out to be pressingly relevant um, as we navigate how we live together in a culture that isn't good with disagreement and isn't good with being together with people with whom we disagree sometimes, and a church culture that sometimes isn't good with being together when we don't disagree, and then also how we live in a culture where there's going to be other voices, including other religious voices, around that maybe Paul has a lot more to offer on this subject than than we thought at first. 
Yes, bottom line, don't be a jerk. <laughs> That's yeah. a good rule. I, yeah, think, I, can, I, I think we can end on that. So uh, join us uh, next time for further adventures uh, wrestling with faith. In the meantime, please don't be a jerk. <laughs> See you guys. Bye. Bye.